to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing the conversations, our conversations, about the cultures of consciousness. Um, uh, I, I'm a good example of the uh, enjoyment that can be gained by going back to university when you can't deal with the real world anymore, which I did uh, in mid-career, as they say. Uh, and I actually had a pretty good time. It was kind of like almost like the fantasy of what a uh, university should be like and wasn't really when I was uh, an anxious, overworked undergraduate. And uh, one of the fun things was uh, sitting around um, with a bunch of guys talking about philosophy and drinking and making fun of each other. Uh, and uh, one of the characters that I had the most fun talking with and from whom I learned more than I did from my classes uh, was Dustin Atlas, who has managed to land himself a job, which is extraordinary in today's academia, even for someone as intelligent uh, as him. Uh, and so congratulations, Dustin, who's an assistant professor at the University of Dayton. And like me, he got his degree in uh, religious studies in the Department of Religion, as they call it now. Uh, and uh, I, I've been thinking about ways to bring him on the show for a while because I always enjoy talking to him about politics and religion and uh, contemporary culture. And we, uh, we settled on the topic of conspiracy theory, which is something that both been interested in for a long time and uh, definitely talked about a number of times on the show. And as people know, it's a tricky thing to talk about. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a la it's a labyrinthine, infectious uh, uh, story that almost initially, you know, right off the bat demands that you kind of define where your position is. And so if you're interested in, in a kind of shifting, open-ended, uh, multidimensional, but still critical view of the topic, uh, things can get uh, pretty sticky. There was one particular article that really got me going, though, on this topic. Um, it came out in the, in the fall in the Atlantic. Uh, by Kurt Anderson called How America Lost Its Mind. And it's sort of the, you know, the Cliff Notes version of his of his book, which I, I, it doesn't seem like there's any need to read after reading um, his argument here. Uh, and while he, you know, does some, you know, decent um, breakdown of our uh, current state of post-reality, you know, in the way in which uh, shifts in conspiracy theory and, and distrust of university and elite and uh, journalistic discourse and counter narratives coming through the internet where there are, are it's very easy to form communities that have alternative belief systems that all of these things have um, helped lead to Trump of course and uh, in Anderson's view is something that was a long time coming because it has to do with some fundamental aspects of being American, that Americans have a tendency towards these big outrageous characters who tell lies, you know, the kind of P.T. Barnum uh, side of American history or the, or in his view, the Mormon side. And how could anybody believe this guy, you know, came up with this uh, revelation and dug it out of a hill, et cetera, et cetera. So he sees the religiosity of America as partly uh, to blame for uh, uh, the current condition, as well as three things, or two other things, of religiosity, American reli re religiosity, the creativity of American religion is partly to blame. And the other things that he blames in the article are the 60s 
and particularly the the mystical turn in the 60s or the doing your own thing man the the dropout hey you can see things in a different way man uh kind of uh, aspect um of the 60s and the third thing was university discourse uh, so sociology a new kind of anthropology that actually tried to take seriously the non-Western worldviews of the people it was studying. Oh, God, how terrible is that? Uh, as well as the general sort of environment of postmodernism where uh, lang language and knowledge claims are always situated in different historical formations. And so you can, you know, foment a lot of relativism. And, you know, these were all things that influenced me. Like I, I consider myself a, a critical, in some ways, rational person certainly a critical person, uh, a thinking person, a sharp person, and yet I'm kind of immersed in all of these streams uh, that, that Mr. Anderson, from his uh, you know, <laughs> diminishing uh, uh, New York elite point of rational secularism, uh, bemoans and, you know, he calls for sort of the return to facts and towards reason, discourse and science and kind of what you'd what, it, what you'd expect. And he gets many, many things terribly wrong. And yet it was sort of an interesting article that, that Dustin and I first started talking about. So with all that, but Dustin, thanks for coming on Expanding Mind. No, thank you kindly for having me. So do you want to start off talking about the, the Anderson article? I know that was something that we were... Uh, I uh, mean, uh, we, we could spend all week talking about what's wrong with that article. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I, I mean, my... my my initial irritation, it's much like yours, but in particular, I focus on the postmodern discourse thing as if postmodernism is to blame in conjunction, I think, with this sort of fetishizing of American individualism as if like what's wrong here, what's wrong with America is that there's too much individualism and it's, it's gone off the off the uh, the tracks, which makes no sense to me. Seeing that it's just not that individualistic a place um, and also university discourse i just i very find it very hard to believe that uh foucault and like peter berger are responsible for trump um i don't really know where you go from there but i mean it's just the atlantic that's what the atlantic does now it seems it's just a call for a return to the 17th century or a very particular fragmented version of it um or for not a fragmented version of it, a very particular fragment of it um to the sort of science element and none of the critical thinking part so. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's such a, a fantasy of its own in a, in a way of um, that there is this kind of place to to operate and that sociological, you know, if you just take the, the sociological elements of this, you know, that the fact that one of the reasons conspiracy theory has, you know, gained such prominence and we're we're holding off on any definitions for the moment. We'll get to that in a second. Is just the you know, the recognition that as postmodernists and sociologists who aren't even postmodern, who consider themselves social scientists who are using reason to understand society, um, so they don't need to be POMOs to make this claim, is that obviously knowledge is produced and it's produced in a certain human way involving human institutions. And somewhere along the line, you come up with this amazing thing like a fact. And I do believe that the, the category of fact is real, that some things are facts and some things aren't facts, but I might have a different different definition of what a fact is than Mr. Anderson, one that pays more attention to these productive, human-based things. And once you become aware of that, then it becomes very easy to begin to critique knowledge claims based on your 
based on politics and based on your feeling about, well, what can we say about the group, whether it's the New York Times or climate scientists on the other side of the aisle, um, what's motivating them politically, what's their self-interest, et cetera, et cetera, as they go about claiming to represent or to put forward facts. And now that's just kind of common knowledge. But I don't think the sociologists who began thinking that way were wrong. They were actually well, no, using I mean, reason not, not to understand. Not it, it, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, it just seems <clears throat> if you want to take this conspiracy seriously and you actually want to acknowledge that whether we define it or not, some conspiracy theories are pernicious. Um, and you want to actually take that seriously and think, okay, how do you deal with people who deny climate change or what have you? I, I find it very hard to believe that bullying them back four centuries is the way to do it, right? So I would, I would assume, I mean, I, I do assume, I think that you, you would have to argue that if anything, they're actually insufficiently, conspiracy theorists are often insufficiently aware of you no know, sort of social production of their own knowledge. So actually you'd want to amp it up, I think. Um, that's that, actually, that's a good point. That's actually let's let's stay with that one for a second. I mean, that's one of the things that you know. There's always this question of like, how do we, how and why do we call something a conspiracy theory? And I think one way that we can continue to use that 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 is part of the definition, only part of it, is that the alternative world view that's being being put forward, the claim about what is. Uh, what we generally, what the mainstream believes is true and how it's actually false or vice versa um, is, is one of the main features of it that makes you go, oh, this sounds like conspiracy theory is, again, just what you pointed out, that the, that the theorist, the person who's putting this forward, is driven by certainty and has yeah, they're, a kind they're immune. of Ever, unreflective position. Exactly. I mean, everyone else is, is caught in some kind of trap, which I actually think is, is probably true. Um, some sort of discursive trap, or we all, we're all representing interests, we don't even know them. But the conspiracy theorist, what's always amazed me is the, uh, the sureness with which, like, that they found the one piece of information that isn't tarnished by media production outlets, social production, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and that is, that's always... My problem is I always think conspiracy theorists don't really go far enough a lot of the time because they don't apply the knife to their own thinking. Um, and, and let's let's stay with that for a little bit because that that seems to me part of a general issue that I've seen. You know, it definitely in our era it's 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 intensified, but it's always been part of the way society works, which is how people respond both in themselves and in the world to certainty. Uh, yeah. I've always been profoundly uncertain. That's like I'm in that sort of existential, endlessly questioning, probably dangerously open-minded. And I, I would not even call it a relativism, but we, that would get down to kind of philosophical niceties to explain. But in any case, I've been I've tried to become very comfortable with uncertainty, which was you know something that Alan Watts talked about. I, I see it as part of a spiritually alive existence and a critically honest mind. Um, and so I've always been very aware of like when people behave with or, or or kind of represent themselves as being certain, and then how other people respond to it. And that's one of the things that seems to be you know, kind of a plague now, part of this conspiracy theory shift or this post-truth reality is that even though it's like everyone's like, oh my God, we're in a post-truth post, post -truth reality where 
we can't refer to truth anymore, there seems to be paradoxically more certainty. Everybody knows. Absolutely. Everybody knows I this mean, person is a racist. Blah blah blah. Every per- you know. So what's yeah. up with that? Well, I mean, I think I think you all. It, it, there's a flip too, right? I mean, there always is, but the same people will off, will often begin with something like you have to mistrust everyone or question everything. I mean, a lot of students come into my class and they say very dogmatically, the most important thing is to question everything. And I actually just don't think it's possible, right? So, I mean, you have to be suspicious not only of where you're certain, but also be suspicious of, I think it's too easy to think that you've completed the work of doubting everything. Um, and rather than viewing it as something which you, you can't, you have to even doubt your ability to doubt. And I know that sounds sort of silly, but I think you have to, like, I, I consider myself someone who questions everything, but I'm, I'm, I know that there's many things I don't question. I just don't see it. Right. Um, and so you have to even be suspicious of your suspicion. Um, and that again is, so the conspiracy theorists, I think work through the, the work of stouting everything very quickly. Maybe they doubt everything they were told up till they were 14 or 15, whatever, some arbitrary thing. And then after that, suddenly, once they've worked through to the present point, they suddenly become remarkably gullible um, to everything given to them afterwards. So maybe you were, you're raised in a very religious environment or you're raised in an environment where you think the I don't know, cable news is trustworthy and you realize one day it isn't, and you consider that the work of questioning everything. But that puts you in a remarkably docile space, um, I think, psychologically. Yeah, I mean that 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 passivity is is an interesting one. I mean, one of the things that you know, there's a number of books and articles both of us have read that you know I think we're probably probably the most productive use of our time here is to kind of play with uh, uh, these 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 different sources, you know, to put on our our, our academic hats. Uh, but yeah, one thing that sure. many of them talk about is, of course, the role of the internet. Uh, outlandish ideas can find whole communities, um, data, you, know, you can begin to interlink data and show, oh, this website says this and this website says that, and then you you make a move and it's like this sort of game of drawing connections between facts or sort of facts or claims or whatever, and that the internet very much foments this. It's kind of a conspiracy machine, a connection machine, and connections uh, are so much an important part of conspiracy thinking, of, of drawing links between things that seemed unconnected. Um, but it, what's one of the things that, that you could say about this is that while, like a lot of things online, like politics online, like all the shame politics that happens on, on social media, uh, is that it, it, it feels very active, but from another perspective, it's extremely passive. Uh, it's, it's, it's passive and it's, it's working with ready-made material. So I, I would actually, at least for the time being, like to even almost pretend I'm going to, per- I personally, I'm, I find the internet overblown in terms of an explanatory apparatus. All these, everything we're going to talk about today is going to list the internet as one of the major causes. And the only person who doesn't really do that uh, is Barkin. And I think, I mean, to put it very bluntly, anyone who's read Theosophists like you have knows that the sort of, um, orgiastic frenzy of overconnecting is not a new thing, um, like connecting different fields. But anyone who's studied the history of Jews or anti-Semitism knows that having a large portion of the population believing something that's completely bonkers is not new uh, at all, right? I mean, Henry Ford, Jewish conspiracy, this was, ever, it was sort of common knowledge. I'm sure as many people in the 30s in America believed that the Jews were controlling the economy as people believe in contrails or 9/11 being an inside job now, I, I don't. I doubt very much those numbers are going to look 
any different. Um, I think what's weird is now one thing which has changed is people who are talking about conspiracy theory suddenly have access to it much more easily. I don't have to get a strange publication anymore. I can just, you know, search conspiracy theory or search whatever I want and find the most outlandish. And, and I certainly agree that the Internet has increased the intensity of, of, of basically everything and the passivity of everything. But I think, I think a lot of the working materials were already there um, long before the Internet took over. Um, you, you, you actually have more access to the sort of things I'm thinking about than I do, though. Yeah, but, you know, it's, it's funny. I, what I, I want to say, let, let's, let's go into the connection with religion here, because I think that given our backgrounds and the, the, top, yeah, the topics on the show, that's a, that's a, that's a, juicy, a juicy place. And I, I admit that we, so far we have avoided actually defining conspiracy theory a little bit, but let's just go with it for now and then maybe get around to it. Is, uh, and one of the things that spurred my thinking recently is that there's very little – there's actually not very much and much uh, – and most of it is very bad uh, scholarly writing about conspiracy you think there would be a lot more richness out there, but there's not actually very much uh, either hard social science or really in-depth um, uh, texts, and some of them are, are quite weak. But w one of the interesting social science things that I found that came out a few years ago uh, called Conspiracy Theories and the Paranoid Styles of Mass Opinion, they do some uh, – they kind of argue that um, – Unlike a lot of people, it, the, the conspiracy, the rise of conspiracy theory does not really seem to be a product of greater authoritarianism or rising ignorance or the Internet or, or, or you know, political conservatism. Some people think that right wingers tend to be more conspiratorial. And that's that's kind of ambiguous. But what they find most robust is a connection between certain kinds of thinking, certainly certain predispositions in ways of organizing stories about reality that we all have different kind of predispositions, you know, psychological, but also culturally uh, based. And that the tightest links they found were precisely things that also have to do uh, with religion. And, you know, one of those is uh, that it's less about misinformation or paranoia and more about uh, the kind of ways in which unseen forces are behind surface events, that kind of basic template, which is obviously yeah. deeply, richly related to religion. And another aspect, uh, which you mentioned, is that the tendency to begin to link many different features into a larger web of meaning. We see this very much in occult thinking. We see this very much in things like theosophy, um, you know, many different speculations and in, in deep interpretations of, of the Bible where you break down the meaning, the symbolic meaning of different words. There's already kind of a paranoid style of interpretation inside even Christianity and, and Judaism for sure. Uh, and then the other thing that draws it is there's an attraction to, to Manichaean stories, to grand stories about battles between good and evil. And that all of these things kind of are more say more about someone's predisposition to believe conspiracy theory than their particular political position or their education or what things on the Internet they read. And I thought that was sort of a, a, an interesting point because there seems to be, you know, in a way like as Anderson says, but there seems to be real deep connections between religious thinking and conspiracy thinking. And then so something about where we are now 
has also something to do with religion, even though it doesn't necessarily look like that. Absolutely. I mean, so I read that article last night, uh, the one you sent me, and it's it's very good. It's definitely one of the better ones. Uh, I, that doesn't make it amazing because there is literally no amazing writing on this topic that I that I found yet. Um, but uh, so the religious studies nerd in me wants to quibble, and I'm sure you'll agree with the term Manichaean is, is sort of wrong there. In fact, if anything, what they're describing is a more kind of typical Christian good versus evil battle. But yeah, so you've got your good versus evil battle, your hidden causes, and your overconnecting of things. And 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 this in this way, like yeah, the the conspiracy theorist world, at least the way meaning is structured, is not that dissimilar from a certain kind of good versus evil. I mean, the same language which leads George W. Bush to say that they're fighting a crusade um, fuels a lot of conspiracy theories. You you don't have to be a Manichaean. You you can be a you know a garden variety good versus evil Christian, which is where I, and I doubt very much. Many of these people are getting. I think it's easier for them to pick on Manichees because there's no one there to to argue back. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I think that that that's all true. Um, again, the, the, to link back to their first point, the thing which always strikes me as the most interesting is the way in which the conspiracy theorist is above the fray, though, because I don't. So what I appreciated about that article is two things: a the kind of dismissal of this, because everyone, there's so many articles like the left is conspiratorial, the right is conspiratorial, et cetera, et cetera. And then this is nonsense and, and it's, it's shared across the bounds. And second off, intellect, um, the notion that conspiracy theory is stupid. And you and I know a few people, I mean, I became interested in conspiracy theory at Rice where I met a person who was absolutely brilliant, who was saturated with conspiracy theory. Um, he, he couldn't – almost everything he thought was conspiratorial and had this paranoid style. So I guess the question is you have all these articles, and they, they, all, they all know that something has to be said about conspiracy and religion, but none of them really have a lot of tools. They're, they're not religious studies scholars almost ever. They're people who have – they're like religion adjacent, and they see a religious style structure, but then they don't have much to say about it other than these terms like Manichaean or – Occult, I think, were the terms used. So, where would you push things next if you really want to understand what's happening? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. It, w- one thing that that I think is is important to point out uh, that's more reflexive about the very term conspiracy theory that relates to this to this topic. And I want to say that, and then we can kind of think a little bit more about what the implications are. Is that you know under the same one of the things that you can say about the general way that people use the term conspiracy theory, which we have to kind of reflect on, is that it it covers, in some sense, two very different kinds of things. One of those things are explicitly political, secular, realist claims about unseen forces manipulating society, mm-hmm. and stories or narratives that go deep into the weird, into supernaturalism, aliens, uh, you know, whatever, uh, 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 demons controlling things, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this, there's this broad move between extremely secular and very, very out there, mystical occult. And then a lot of things in between. So then like UFOs, are kind of in between. You can talk yeah. about UFOs in sort of a secular realist way. There actually were these things that were recovered by the government that becomes the source of new technologies in Silicon Valley. And that's still all, you know, realist in the sense that it's still kind of talking about 
technologies and knowledge and, and institutions. And then you have, you know, the Royal societies and, or the, you know, the, uh, the, the Royals in, in Europe are all actually aliens. And, you know, if you had the right glasses on, you could see that they were lizard people from Arcturus or something like that. That's on the other end. So the UFO kind of stands in the middle of this, the of this stuff. But um, that was sort of intentionally constructed in a way. There's at least an argument to be put forward. One of the one of the books that, that, that you and I both uh, are drawing from uh, is that, uh, you know, kind of fun book uh, by Lance DeHaven Smith called Conspiracy Theory in America. And what he argues is that while the term conspiracy theories pre preexisted, the JFK assassination is it did not become a term of art, something you saw in the newspaper until afterwards when it was explicitly used, according to this author, explicitly used to uh, undermine claims that went against the Warren Commission conclusion that 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 Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone murderer of uh, JFK. So anything that 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 began to uh, question that conclusion was lumped under conspiracy theory. And in so doing, they were able to kind of, they wanted the term to drift from reasonable, secular, rational claims about unseen conspiracies into a kind of mystical or religious zone that, that, that then could be written off as kooky. So the way in which the term conspiracy theory combines rational, historical, realist claims and supernatural, mystical, bizarre, occult claims is itself partly an effect of the way in which the term conspiracy theory has been used by people, by elite discourse, in order to, to besmirch claims that they don't want to seem more legitimate than they are. That's the guy's argument anyway. But I think it's important to, to recognize that there's this fundamental ambivalence inside conspiracy theory between super kooky, super kooky, and very legitimate, rational claims that may not that may not you know lead to rational conclusions, and depending on how you mean rationality, but are certainly not leaving the the world of historical causal scientific forces. Yeah, so, so I don't know what to do with that. There's a lot of juicy stuff there, and I mean I'm gonna you might have to cut me off because like now nah, I have like ten things I want to say. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, first, uh, I, I mean, I, I focus almost entirely on the secular sort of element because, I mean, I, I just don't know what to say about aliens and whatnot. But <clears throat> so even if we don't go with that author um, fully and say something like um, conspiracy theory, the word itself is a conspiracy, it's certainly derogatory. It's not something, and this is a major difference between most religions, very few people, if any, will call themselves a conspiracy theorist, whereas most religious people will consider themselves religious. So there's one major disjunction right there. Um, and it's an insult. And as you said, you have to differentiate not only between sort of secular and sort of wilder forms of conspiracy, but even within the secular, you have to distinguish. And, and, and I think literally none of the studies we looked at was willing to do this. Um, between ones that are true and ones that are false. Um, I mean, there are real conspiracies. It is, of course, the case that uh, powerful people meet and try to carve up the world between them and figure out ways of doing it that uh, aid their interests and not ours. Um, and 
most people who study conspiracy begin by saying something like, I wash my hands of this, I'm going to be agnostic if it's true or not. But I actually think that that's a mistake. Even if you don't decide, you have to be able to differentiate between, say, the claim that the CIA destabilized Latin American governments, which is true. The CIA killed JFK. I doubt it, but it's not unthinkable. And, you know, the royal family are lizard people, which, despite their grisly pallor, is, you know, I think almost for sure untrue. And so you have to ask, why is it or how is it that these claims, which to most people seem ridiculous, can be accepted and accepted based on the same sort of structure of thinking that also conveys knowledge that, you know, the CIA, you know, leads coups, right? Why, what, so there's, there's a weird, and, and I think, of course, it's, it's very useful for people in power to have them all called the same thing because, um, well, for, for the reasons you just said, I, I can very easily discredit someone by calling them a conspiracy theorist when they talk about the CIA overthrowing sovereign governments, but we, we know they do that. They've admitted it, right? So it's a very odd circumstance where lizard people and uh, Nicaragua is, is sort of, it's, it's said in the same breath. Um, and again, religion. Well, may, sorry, were you going to say something? No, no. I, I was. I was going to say so. Hit on on a point. I mean, one of the. Um, you're, I mean, basically, you're saying is that at some point in the discussion, however much you want to be trying to just understand the phenomena or trying to reflect on why it's changing, et cetera, et cetera, you have to get your hands dirty with the question of truth. And uh, part and of that the phenomenon the, is that a normal person or even an abnormal person who speaks three or four dead languages or can read and write four dead languages is, is an impressive scholar, very intelligent, will suddenly stop using the same standards of thinking and the same standards of proof to convince me that the airplane flying overhead is putting a drug in me to make me more docile, right? And, and that's an odd thing in itself, right, and actually worthy of note. Um, I mean, again, yeah. I, I think the what you do with that, well, problem... but that's also that's that sense of certainty. That's the thing that really puzzles me when I when I go into this this world. Yeah, is there's a certain you know I, I, here's here's an, there's one one uh, a scholar a scholar of occultism named Asbjorn Diendel, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name. He makes a very interesting distinction between conspiracy culture and conspiracy theory. And for him, conspiracy okay. theory is like theorists who believe what they say and are arguing, you know, usually, as you point out, without too much reflection about their own claims, but they're, they're driven by certainty and they're, you know, arguing with other theorists about who's right and et cetera, et cetera. And conspiracy culture is a not inconsiderable amount of us who, for various reasons, read, follow, enjoy, are fascinated, repulsed, but still drawn to conspiracy. And this is, you know, me, this is why, you know, I've always been interested in this stuff, the same thing with religion, the same thing with weird occult beliefs and strange religions and all this stuff. It's all kind of part of a fascination with fringe thinking, with alternative views, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm very much in the conspiracy uh, culture camp. And from that camp, one of the things that what distinguishes me from the theorist is the the this arising of certainty and and what is that where does that come from is it is it a self-authorization is it is it something like a virus like if you read just the right kind of piece uh, or see the right video about the 9-11 or whatever and it, the way that they set things up it produces a kind of certainty. Uh, that's the part I don't understand. Is it is it a different kind of thing that isn't actually like a rational phenomena? That kind of certainty, I, I really don't know. Do you have a sense of it? I, I have two senses, and, and they're quite opposed, so they're probably both wrong. Um, 
I mean, my, my opening move in any of these discussions is, is well, that two moves. One is to, um, I, I think probably most conspiracy theories are false, um, but I do actually think that the conspiracy theorist is usually more kind of on my side, as it were, or closer to me than, say, this sort of Anderson at the Atlantic who's just sort of bullying people to please accept, you know, technological enlightenment. Um, and I think... Where does this certainty come from? I think I think it comes from two different things. One, much like Anderson or these other writers, who they consider themselves critical people, they really only they hit a point of exhaustion, and wherever that line is, everything after that is true. Um, for him, it's it's very clear. You know, him, it's it's a sort of techno scientific enlightenment. You hit that line. I don't really understand it anymore. But it's a complex phenomenon, so I simplify it, and I just sort of decide that it's it's good, right? Um, I think the other thing which we haven't talked about yet is is there's a social piece which you sort of hinted at there, which is that these these take place in communities, right? I mean, um, and there's a kind of warmth in conspiracy theory communities, I think, and a sort of mutual affirmation. It's a very weird community because. Um, they they claim to be thinking as individuals and they certainly don't do anything close to community action. Like there's no collective organization that I've ever seen in a conspiracy theory community. But it's uh, when you actually like, you know, when they used to use message boards, like they're, they're actually kind of, despite the occasional spats and hostility, like really warm places where people would actually get together and talk about things that matter. Right. Um, and like I said, although I think the conclusions are often wrong, a lot of the opening moves are correct, right? It is true that powerful people um, organize, and it is true that they, I, I don't think they have the power that's, that's attributed to them. Um, so I guess those would be the first two. And then the third and slightly more condescending, and, but, but also obvious thing is that um, there's a comfort in the sort of certainty given to you by conspiracy. I mean, in some respects, it's nicer to think you live in a world where all the terrible things that happen to you have a reason. Even if the reason is that there's an evil malevolent force that hates you, it's a reason. And it's slightly more comforting than what I think is the case a lot of the time, which is bad luck, stupidity, and um, just yeah, chaos and complexity and, and multiple forces and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I very much have that have that point of view as well, like or, the, or the idea that, yes, there's many, a lot of these conspiracies are true, meaning that there are some groups of people who are trying to foment their control in certain ways, but that there's so many of them that they're just competing with each other as well. And so what en yeah. ends up actually happening is still as much about uh, circumstances, bad luck, good luck, uh, uh, we, you know, other factors, chaos. In a sense. I mean, they take, take uh, the Rothschilds, right? Everyone loves good. the Rothschilds. Um, they apparently control everything and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it turns out the Rothschilds are a powerful but mid-level um, banking family. Like, what is, what is actually interesting is that you have these families, tons of them, in banks. And they, they, you know, they look out for their own interests. And there's many of them of many different groups and cultures and blah, 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 blah. So the, the sort of depressing thing is that there's actually a sort of a, a set, like a, a number of people who are, you know, exploiting you economically. But it's much more comforting to go for the sort of anti-Semitic uh, classic. Not, and the thing is with that one, it's best because it's not even the Jews, which is too complicated. It's one family, right, which is a very nice, polished, everything that goes wrong, I can now blame on this one family. And there's something really nice about that, I think, for people. It's comforting. 
Um, well, and they sort of make the, a kind of incomplete dialectical leap. They go from like the universe doesn't like they realize, I think when they're young or whatever, the universe, they, they, you grow up, you think the universe cares for you or on some level, something is interested in you. Then you realize it doesn't care for you. And so they, they sort of go into the opposite. Okay. So it's, it's actively hostile. The universe hates you. So that sort of, you know, description of chaos, it's easy to read that as, 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 um, malicious but it isn't right it's it's just it's actually far worse than being malicious it's just um it's just sort of shitty right um it's empty um and i think that they can't i well no one can i mean it's a very hard thing to to accept that uh a lot of the violence that's perpetrated on us is is done unthinkingly ineptly and that a lot of these families who are meeting and trying to figure out how to, you know, control things. These, I shouldn't say families. It's not families anymore. Corporations, they're also inept. I mean, they also fall and rise and what have you. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, for, it, for me, one of the one of the the sort of redoubts of my general skepticism about a lot of uh, conspiracy theories that emphasize the power of one particular organization behind a whole cultural phenomena is. I believe that if everybody is honest about the the situations they actually know about, the organizations they're actually involved in, the, the you know the companies they work for, the uh, groups they're part of, the internet communities they're in, the listservs, the hobbyist communities, the local political organizations, if people really pay attention to the, to the human institutions they actually know about, they don't. They, it's clear that that they they're inept. They're they're contradictory. There's constant politics and infighting that it's, it's a mess and that they still make decisions. They still have force in the world. And I, it, the idea that somehow when you get to that level, everything changes and there's this kind of uniformity and this kind of, you know, mis, you know, perfect, pure and perfect execution. Uh, that's it's the like, part. It's, I, it's I like the Russians, with. not the fact that they are. I mean, there are people in the CIA doing mind control. There's people in Facebook doing mind control. It's just mind control. It's not. Uh, it's not. Consp- I'm not being a conspiracy guy to say no, that. No, of course. But how you know how effective it is and how it works when there's a lot of other people doing the same kind of thing with different ends, it becomes complicated again. No, I mean, yeah. So it's like the Russians during the Cold War. I mean, they were, you know, supposedly. I mean, there's funny stories about how a lot of the information about Russian like supporters, like you know, perfection and superiority, was was played there by the CIA, and it sort of fed back on itself. And suddenly, one person from one office is reporting a fact as fact something that another person planted, which is just sort of entertaining. It actually just goes to show how inept everyone is. But I mean, before the wall fell, I mean, Russia was supposedly. You know, there, there, there were, there were geniuses. They could do no wrong. They could make the sun rise and set. And it's weird how quickly we return to that vis-a-vis, like the most recent election in America. Suddenly, is you know, <laughs> apparently planned by the Russians, which is amazing. Um, yeah, and so you take that logic. That's the thing. This logic is everywhere. It's not just in conspiracy theory. You see it on on MSNBC. I mean, yeah. It, it, it's, you know, it's one, one point I wanted to make uh, about before we still staying with the topic of, of religion and particularly with esotericism with the occult um, is that there's a very Gnostic structure to conspiracy theory knowledge in the following sense. If you look at that, you know, the ancient, you know, Gnostics are like, they're a minority, you know, let's just simplify it and say, you know, most people are like mainstream Christians in the third century or whatever, and they believe in the church and this and that. And the Gnostics, the ones who are going, 
well, you know, actually the God in the uh, in 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 Eden, you know, the the one who tells him not to eat the, the tree, that that's not the real yeah. God. That's the lower God who's controlling our reality. And actually, what we're trying to do is get out of this broken demonic reality and get back to home. You know, that basic kind of you know, I'm radically oversimplifying. But it returns very clearly in, in, in conspiracy theory because when you are, when you are convinced of a counter-normative account of reality, chemtrails, let's say, then you enter into a kind of world of a sort of counter-elite discourse. It's like now you and your other friends who believe the same thing know something. You have been gifted with a deep knowledge that shows that everybody else is benighted. And so yeah. it puts you in this very strange psychological situation where on the one hand, you know something, and you know something of great import that reflects on this kind of apocalyptic battle over history. But at the same time, you also have a reason to explain why everybody else doesn't agree with you. So it's yeah. a very and I mean, strange you- and appealing kind of alienation. It's a way of sort of adding charisma to your alienation that's very attractive uh and i've seen it a lot even the psychedelic i want to push it even further and say not only is everything you said obviously like it's it's absolutely true there's also the transformative effect of knowing is also so so what is the the conspiracy theorist is almost a new person once they know right they're no longer in the same so not only they have this nice explanation as to why everyone else is, is an idiot and thinks that, you know, the God of Eden is, is the high God. Really, I know it's the low God. You trust the news. I don't trust the news, blah, blah, blah. But I'm also transformed by my knowledge. I'm no, I don't exist in the same world. So if we want to go back to your first question as to, like, where the certainty comes from, this is, it partially comes from this. Um, my knowledge is now no longer tarnished because I've been transformed by my knowledge. And I'm transformed only by my knowledge. I don't actually have to do anything which I think is also very appealing. I mean, if you look at the numbers in that article you sent me, like there was a time when one in four Americans thought 9-11 was an inside job. So, you know, this, 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 you know, pushes forward a very obvious, if so many people believe it, like why aren't they doing anything about it, right? And there's two obvious answers I can make. I can say, well, they don't really believe it. They're just saying that. Oh, it's like sort of bullshit. Or I could say they believe it, but they believe it in a way where like they don't have to do anything about it. Um, knowing is enough for them, right? And I think it's the latter. Um, I think because mm-hmm. I mean, you would think if one in four people thought that their own government like did this, there would be riots in the streets. That's a lot of people. Um, but nothing happens, right? And that actually seems to be part of the way that this knowledge works. And you could sort of map onto the quietism of a lot of Gnostic movements very nicely, which is that you know, but knowing's good enough. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to write. You don't have to protest. You don't have to organize um, because you're now transformed. And, and there's nothing you can do for these other people anyway, right? They're beneath, they're beneath you to a certain extent, and you can't help them, right? They're going to yeah. think that the God of Eden is, is the real God no matter what you do. What you need to do is just like, you know, focus on your transfigured state. Now, you know a lot more about Gnosticism than I do, so maybe I'm wrong and it's not that. No, no, no. I think but. that's totally, that's totally uh, on, on point. You know, we have about uh, about 10 minutes here, and I just wanted to get to get in a couple of points. Um, one person we haven't talked about, and we don't, I don't we have time to go into her, her whole story, is, is uh, Jody Dean, who is a very smart, uh, you know, left social critic, 
you know, influenced by Zizek and some psychoanalytic stuff in pretty interesting ways. Definitely someone worth wrestling with. Um, and in uh, this, her book, Democracy and Other Neoliberal Fantasies, she, she talks about conspiracy theory, which she talks about extensively in her first book as well, which I think you also agree is not, is not, as, not as hot. And she, no, no, there's no, no. one question that she has that, that, she, that, that is, really brings it down to, the, to our contemporary moment. Like why this stuff, why are we talking about this now in the tr Trump era, in the post-truth era, in the question university elites, question, and just basically the situation everybody, we, we see ourselves in, is that she wonders whether this reflect, you know, and earlier you had mentioned, you know, at some point you have to go and go and start going, this is true, this isn't true. You know, the CIA did undermine, you know, legitimately democratically elected governments uh, in, in South America and in, in Iran. And, you know, that actually happened. And other things are like, I don't know about that, you know, and you do have to kind of play that game. But she asked this question, which is that are, is what we're seeing the erosion of the very conditions of possibility for something like belief or credibility, that there's something happening in where we decide, who we, whoever we are, what truth is, whether it's in the academy, whether it's in newspapers, whether it's among individuals, whether it's in philosophical systems, that, that we're actually eroding the very space where we might be able to agree on something like, yes, the CIA did meddle in South American elections in, in the 1950s and 60s. You know, and, and that's the really scary thing. It's like, is, is, it, is it going? I mean, is that, I mean, is, is the, the uh, Trump's attack on mainstream journalism and, you know, climate science and, and, or, and that whole kind of view a sign of the loss or radical erosion of any kind of place where we might have a we that can just talk about truth. Is that happening or is that, or is that hysterical? Uh, I, I think it's a little like, so yes and no. I mean, so, I mean, I think one, a big background crisis in a lot of this and the reason why we're talking about Trump and conspiracy, I mean, um, is, uh, I, don't, I mean, so I, I don't think there's a crisis of truth, but what there is is a crisis of legitimacy of certain organizations and organs of truth, which no longer count. Um, so to a certain extent, what you're seeing is a very overhyped death of trust, trust in cable news or news, period, right? Um, you know, the Walter Cronkite delivering the news, everyone like agrees that that's over, right? And it's been over for a while, but now it's very over. And here where I should feel concern, because I think it's bad, but I honestly think that the news organizations did this to themselves. Um, I mean, who can take CNN seriously after, like, the Lewinsky stuff or, like, watching how they helped get Trump? I, yeah, I mean, so I think there's a crisis of certain forms. What worries me and everyone else where I think that they have a case is there's this sort of ideological apparatus, and we'll call it science, right, with a capital S. And you have, like, people who are like, I love science or I hate whatever, this sort of weird battle over this homogenized scientific discourse. This is a concern for me um, because I think we're about to enter into a phase of human history where we actually are going to need to have a more sensible and, and like sophisticated understanding of what science is and what it does if we're tackling the ecological crisis, for instance. Um, so there I think they maybe have a point, but I think to a certain extent there's a historical overreaction, a hysterical overreaction to the end of 
cable news. Um, and certain and, and organizations that gutted themselves to a certain extent, um, they, I, they they overextended themselves with the twenty four hour cycle. I mean, maybe I'm downplaying something which is very serious, but I don't know. I, I certainly don't. No, think I, I, I think. I mean, I think that's a good. I think that's a a good point. I'm also much more concerned. I mean, the, the the discourse around science has been stupid for a long time because of the yep. difference between what actual sciences with a small s do. Uh, and particularly the way in which so much science is actually technology is, is actually invention and entrepreneurship and not the sort of abstract, um, you know, discussion of what nature, how nature works. Uh, the, the different, the distinction between that and capital S science where like scientists claim that and, you know, yeah. and then we go on is, is so enormous already that it was already pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, so what is being undermined in some sense didn't quite exist that way anyway. Um, yeah. But I, I, am a, I do have some serious fears about the capacity of people to think well with, with nuance and complexity, which is the only way to really think about some of these issues. And it's yeah. just hard. It's hard and it's scary because there's not really a ground. You don't have a real clear sense of where the kind of final fact lies. Uh, and yet it's not a pure relativism. That's what's so wrong about people like Anderson. They're just, they're, they're living in a different world. They just don't, I don't think they understand how knowledge works. Um, they certainly don't understand how it's disseminated. I mean, this was always my problem with my friends who denied the moon landing. It's, you just always want to say, so why didn't the Russians point out that, you know, so yeah, as you said, there's competing interests even with these. So, of course, I, could I believe that the American government would try to fake a moon landing to serve their interests? Sure, why not? Would do I believe that every other government in the world would be, like, fine with that? Uh, no, I don't, right? Um, and same thing with, like, certain scientific claims. Like, the, the sort of attentiveness to uh, competing forces would really go a long way in helping both idiotic positions in this debate um, find their way out of it. But I don't think there's a lot of interest in that, um, I mean, we've talked for almost an hour, and we've we've circled around and said very little, and that's partially because we're trying to not just pick a side and sort of um, hammer it out. And that would be much more attractive. Obviously, I could just say, you know, like a, like the first Dean book, which was much more problematic, that, you know, conspiracy theory is a kind of counterculture, and it's exciting because it's opening up new types of knowledge. Or I could say with the Atlantic article that conspiracy theory is rotting away our ability to tell true from false, and I think both of these positions are, are almost for sure not true. Um, and it, it's symptomatic, and it's an exciting symptom to play with, uh, because in a way, I think we all have to be kind of conspiracy theorists to think critically, but the conspiracy theorist doesn't go far enough. And I, would, I always ask them just to go further, to, 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 to sort of apply this, the critical tools to their own selves, so, so to ask why they have managed to, to escape Oh. Exactly, and what and and, to, and that requires psychological reflection, and it requ re requires reflection about how one's own knowledge comes to be, and well, yeah, and, uh, it's, it's and that's right? really important stuff. You know, that's like living. That's like being a real human being. It's like having that kind of reflection on the inside. And we, again, just again, just it's way too short amount of time. Just a few minutes left. But what it, what it makes me think, and you're a historian of of, of philosophy in particular is that people are being initiated without knowing it to how deep the problem of skepticism is. Like skepticism yes. is sort of a, it's now a bankrupt word because uh, 
arrogant, militant rationalists use it as a term to attack what they think of as fuzzy thinking or alternative medicine or whatever. So in a way, I'm not using the term in that way. I'm using it in a more classical philosophical sense. Is it the problem of skepticism is all it takes you all the way into the abyss. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. no joke. Once you start wrestling with some of these arguments, you find that your ground is gone and there are the strategies to get out of there are not simple. But I think it's like what you're saying is that a lot of conspiracy theorists get to a certain point of skepticism and then they're kind of like non-reflective, egoic, uh, or certainty comes in and they're like, okay, I'm done. You know, I'm done with the yeah. process. It, it reeks of a kind of exhaustion. It's like they get tired and they just sort of cling to something. The same way, like whenever you, you come close to a psychological breakdown, I often find myself feeling more conservative because I just want to hold on to something. Um when my own mind isn't behaving as I would like it to. Uh, yeah, and I think, uh, sort of near final point, it irritates me in these discussions because we, we keep having to hear about postmodernism or sociology of knowledge, but every single thing that these sort of opponents of conspiracy theory diagnose is already in skepticism, like thousands of years previous, right? Um, all the kind of relativism breakdown, all it's, it's already there in Piro, right? Like, um, it's already, I mean, if you don't want to go back that far, you can read Montaigne, um, or Sandy yeah, I mean, or whatever. It's, we, we forget, like if we, th if you think about modern philosophy, starting with Descartes, which is kind of bullshit, but whatever, let's just take that. Let's go with it. One thing people never, never like acknowledge is that what Descartes was fighting against was an enormous tide of insane degrees of skepticism amongst yeah. thinking people in Europe. I mean, like you read the stuff and you're like, oh my God, they're like, they're crazier than us. I mean, this is like, I can't Absolutely. believe any, any sensation is a construction. Da, da, da. So it's like, it's already, this is a problem of human experience of human thought. And, and people like Anderson, they don't do not help by blaming. No, I mean, Descartes, like, you know, he mobilizes skepticism. So does Kant, but they try to, they try to keep it in a box very, very tightly. And, you know, once they work through it, then they're free to build. And then in this respect, to be unfair to Descartes and Kant, they have a kind of, they echo a lot of these conspiracy theories and, and Anderson in that they, they sort of have their skeptical moment. They work through it and they're like, okay, we've cleaned house. We've, we've laid the foundation and now everything we build from here on in is fine. And this is a kind of, a, a, of extreme arrogance. Now, Kant and Descartes, maybe they deserve to be this arrogant, but most of us don't, right? Like most of us, if you really think you've doubted everything, if you really think that you've extricated yourself from doubt or even more subtly, I think, if you think that you, if you honestly think that you doubt everything, I, I believe you're delusional. Um, and I think the, the thing that's hard for people to handle is like, I don't doubt everything. I'm sure of it, but here's what I can't be sure. Of. I actually don't know what I don't doubt. Like, I don't know what that, that thing is. Right. Um, I have to be open to the fact that I am dogmatically doing something. Even when I think I'm questioning myself, um, why would I be the only person who doesn't act uh, for my own material interests, right? Why would I be the only person who managed to like escape all that stuff, right? And so, um, I don't know. I, there's no obvious solution here, but I do think that you know, thinking you've worked your way to the other side is something that's shared by conspiracy theorists and their opponents, um, especially those Dawkins, skeptic, whatever. I don't think I can swear on this show, but those people as well. Um, they, 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 they're skeptical. They, they, they say they doubt everything, but they don't. Um, they certainly don't doubt their own powers. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I think that, and I think that's a great place to to end. And it is funny reflecting on our conversation, like in a way how little we said, how how we didn't get to the meat, because it's that's part of the thing. It's very hard to do this and not just fall into existing frameworks uh, about sort of underlying assumptions about whether this is good or, or bad or like the, the, those two points of, of view that you talked about. Uh, nonetheless, I, th- I thought it was a very interesting uh, attempt. And I would also emphasize one element of that is the fact that we did this in dialogue is really key. It's not, it's not just an extra, just the fact that we're, it's, a, it's a talk show that dialogue is really key because in dialogue you in if you're trying to understand the other person even if we think fairly similarly uh you have to have some kind of ch- degree of charity jody dean talks about this. you have, to have some kind of degree that like when they're talking about their reality you know they're they're more or less kind of trying to describe things accurately for, from from their perspective and once you let that go that's partly the why how we wound up in this sh- shitty time and in, in discourse in history and in, in public conversation because that that element of charity is gone and it's a in some ways a religious value uh and i thought that's uh so i just kind of wanted to emphasize that it's not just about um going through our own skepticism and wrestling with it in our own individual terms but it's also a, a, about allowing a certain degree of how should we say truthiness uh into our conversation with with others in the world Absolutely. Thank All you right. For, uh, so, hey, D- Dustin, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you kindly for having me. I appreciate it, Eric. All right. Uh, that was Thank Dustin you. Atlas. Uh, he teaches uh, in Ohio. Uh, and wait, hey, D- Dustin, what's your what's your website where you you occasionally blog? Oh, I uh, I, I can give you that. <laughs> I think it's called blog blog blog. But uh, <laughs> I think if they search my name, they'll probably find it. I don't know. Okay. Great. I'm so write uh, anyway, it's, it's fun to it's fun to. Fun to dive into uh, Dustin's thought, and I'll have him back on the show uh, to talk about some other topics. So uh, until next week, keep your minds open. Mm-hmm.